We are in Mark chapter 9. We are continuing through our series in Mark. And I want to just kind of start off with the question just to see if you maybe agree with this or not. You don't have to answer it out loud or raise your hand or anything. Uh, but Oscar Wilde once said that imitation is the most sincerest form of flattery. All right? So if you really want to flatter somebody, you imitate them. Now, understand, we are people at our very core that are imitators, right? So stop and think with me. You dress a certain way because you saw somebody dress that way. You know, maybe you saw on a website or a friend or you read in a magazine kind of what the new style is coming out. And so you've started dressing toward a trend. Uh, you've seen some friends dress a certain style. And so you started dressing that way. Uh, maybe if you're a musician, you hold an instrument based on the way your favorite musician held that instrument. Uh, if you play sports or you grew up playing sports, you held your baseball bat based on the way your favorite player held their baseball bat. Right? We are all natural imitators. Now, some of you are looking at me like, I don't know if I agree with that quite yet. So let me put this one out for you. You imitate your parents as a parent more than you know. So you do some things that your parents did when they were parenting you, or you say some things to your kids that your parents said to you. For example, I had this said to me when I was growing up, and I had said this to my kids at one point in their life. Stop that crying, or I will give you, fill in the blank, something to cry about. Does that make any sense in the world? No. Didn't make sense to me as a kid when I was crying, and my dad said, you're going to quit that crying right now, boy. And I don't know about you in your house, but when I got in trouble, I lost all identity. No longer. You know how some parents will, like, call you by their full name when you get in trouble? Like, when I got in trouble with my dad, I was no longer David Lee Peoples Jr. I was just boy, right? Like, the whole name and identity stripped, right? You stop that crying right now, boy, or I will give you something to cry about. And wouldn't you know, when I was parenting my kids when they were younger, there were times I said that. And I thought, man, I'm just like my parents. Why do we do that? Why do we imitate people in maybe their dress and what they do and their hand gestures and their voice? Why do we do that? You know why? Because that's who God's created us to be. He's created us to be imitators. And God, though, says, I've created you in this ability to imitate me. Ephesians 5.1, Paul says, be imitators of God. But here's the sin struggle that we have. The sin struggle that I have and you have is not imitating God, but imitating the world. It's going a different direction. Saying, God, I don't want to imitate you in the way you think and the way you act, the way you treat people and the way you love people. I want to do it this way. And so what Mark chapter 9 is doing is it's drawing our attention to Jesus. And Mark's going to say, no, 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 here's who you need to look at. Here's who you need to imitate, because I want you to notice this truth as we move through the text today. You become what you behold. So when you think about this passage this morning, I want you to just kind of keep that in your mind. You become what you behold. What you affix your attention on in life, what you behold, that is what you'll become. So what has your attention? Your job? Your bank account? The next award your kid's out to win? You know, what has really your attention in life? Because you become what you behold. 
And so I want you to notice this first truth from Mark chapter 9. If we want to say, okay, we want to be people that we want to behold Jesus because we want to become more like Jesus, we want to imitate Jesus, then first you've got to look to the glory of Jesus. You've got to look at Jesus. We say, all right, we want to behold him. What do I need to do? Look to the glory of Christ. When we pick up in Mark chapter 9, right there in verse 1, Jesus gives them a promise. And then listen to this promise. He says, truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Jesus has just told them, I'm going to die. I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to be killed on a cross. Three days later, I'm going to rise in glory. And here, if you want to follow me as a disciple, you must deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. That's the requirements of being a Christian, a follower of Christ. He's just laid that out for them for the very first time. Then he needs to settle their hearts down. He needs to settle their minds and their souls down because it's now racing. Because for the very first time, Jesus has said, this is how I'm going to usher in the kingdom of God. And they had a different perspective and a different way of that's the way it was going to be done. And so Christ says, no, no, no. Here, let me give you this promise. He says, there are some standing here who they'll not taste death until they see the kingdom of God come after it's come with power. Now, what is he talking about? I believe he's talking about two things, two incidences. Number one, his transfiguration, which we're about to get to. And number two, his resurrection. That he's pointing them to two events that are about to happen where they are going to see the glory of Christ, the power of the resurrected Jesus, because what has he just told them? He says, I'm going to die. And then I'm going to rise with power. And I'm going to rise in glory. What is the promise of the Christian life? The promise of the Christian life is this. You die to yourself so one day in heaven you see the glory of Jesus. See, Paul says it this way in Philippians 3.10. He says, I want to know the resurrection power of Christ. But in order to know the resurrection power of Christ, Paul says in Philippians 3.10, I must first die to myself. Glory does not come before death. Death, then glory. And so Jesus says, guys, settle down. It's okay. You're going to see the Son of God, the kingdom of God come with its power because I'm going to die and I'm going to rise in glory. And as that's happening, six days later, Jesus Verse 2 tells us, takes Peter, James, and John up on a mountain. And a believer, kind of uh, scholars think this is maybe Mount Horeb. And, and he takes the inner circle. So you've got 12 disciples who follow Christ, but he often pulls the inner circle aside. So he's often pulling Peter, James, and John, sometimes Andrew, who's brother of Peter. And he kind of pulls them off for private discussion. So we, we think in the kind of the leadership structure of the 12, these, these three are really the leaders. And so Jesus says, hey guys, you've got to come here. And he takes them up on top of the mountain. And notice what verse 2, there's an interesting word right there in verse 2. He says, before them, he was transfigured. Now, the word transfigured uh, in the Greek is where we get our word metamorphosis from in the English. And so metamorphosis is the process of a change from the, something on the outside that's come from the inside. Right? So the outside change because of a change on the inside. All right, so think about it uh, this way. You'll you guys get this one. Um, a, a, a caterpillar goes into a cocoon. He's in the cocoon for a period of time. What comes out of the cocoon? Butterfly, right? So it, they, that process of metamorphosis. 
So Christ, though, be careful here. Christ is not changing his nature. Nothing about his character, nothing about his nature changes in this transfiguration. Still Christ. But what he's done is he's saying, hey, you right now see me as a, about a 30-year-old Galilean fisherman or, you know, or carpenter. You see me that way. But let me show you really who I am on the inside. And right there on top of that mountain, he shows all of his glory to Peter, James, and John. I mean, he just kind of pulls it back the curtain. He says, this is who I really am on the inside. This is me in all my glory. Now, I, I love what Mark tries to do under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He tries to paint a word picture for us of what that looked like. Verse 3, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. Understand in this day, in this time, in this culture, in this place, you didn't walk around really in a white robe uh, because there's no green grass. There's no real, you know, lilies of the field. I mean, this is a dirty, dusty place. And so Mark's trying to give us this word picture of the brightness and the glory and the majesty of Christ. But in our human imaginations, we're still having trouble wrapping our minds around that. But isn't it going to be wonderful, though, one day in heaven to be able to stand and see Christ in all of his glory? I mean, just, just like the song says, I can, I can only imagine what that's going to be like. When one day we're before the glorified, risen Christ. And then... As all this is taking place, there's some guests that come on top of the mountain as well. In verse 4, it says, there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they're talking to Jesus. Now, what in the world are they talking about? <laughs> you know, I mean, Peter, James, and John, they're off to the side. Christ is transfiguring himself. He's showing all of his glory. And then here's Peter, you know, or here's Elijah and Moses, and they're talking to Christ. What do you think they're talking about? Well, Mark doesn't tell us. Mark only tells us in, in verse 4 there's a conversation happening. But if we turn to Luke chapter 9 and verse 31, Luke's going to say they're talking about his departure. They're talking about the departure of Christ. And that word departure is really interesting because it's rooted in the Hebrew word exodus. So stop and think who's on that mountain with them. What did Moses do in an exodus? Moses led the people of Israel out of slavery, out of the hands of Pharaoh. He had an exodus. Well, what's Jesus about to do? He's about to lead his people on an exodus out from the slavery of sin. So now Christ is saying, if you come to me as you're my Lord and Savior, if you come and you place your faith and trust in me, I lead you away from sin. I lead you away from hell. I lead you away from the power of sin in your life. I'm one day leading you into heaven where you will no longer be in sin's presence forever. There is an exodus taking place with Christ, and it is away from sin. But why Moses and Elijah? Why those guys? Why not like... Jacob and Malachi. <laughs> Why Moses and Elijah? Well, because in the Jewish understanding, Moses represented the law. Elijah represented the prophets. And here's Moses and Elijah saying, look to Christ, because Christ came to fulfill the law and the prophets. If you are writing out you know, as a Jewish person, your Old Testament hall of fame, you would have Moses and Elijah on your first ballots. They would automatically pretty much be in there. And here's Moses and Elijah saying, no, no, no. Here's Jesus who is greater than us. If the truth is 
that you become what you behold, then look to Christ. Look to this Jesus. Learn to look to Christ in your life to say, I want to behold him. But let me show you the second truth of this passage, and it's this. We need to listen to the words of God. All right, so we need to look to Christ in order to behold him, but then we need to listen to Christ in the words of God. Now, verse 5 tells us Peter does what Peter does, and we're not going to be hard on Peter because we would do the exact same thing, and we do it all the time in our lives. He speaks before he thinks. And in verse 5, what does it say? Peter just blurts out, Rabbi, it is good we are here. Right? Like Jesus, is. It's good. We're here. Yeah, no kidding, Pete. <laughs> like, I mean, like, really, man? Yeah, good you showed up. Good I invited you. Yeah, it's good you're here. Now, why in the world is Peter blurting this stuff out? Well, verse 7 tells us Peter's terrified. He doesn't know what to do. He doesn't know what to say. What would you do? What would you say? Maybe you're like James and John. You just got your mouth open, and you're like, oh, what just happened? I don't know what's going on. But Peter, being the spokesman of the group and the one who just usually talks out loud, he's just like, all right, hey, it's good we're here. Hey, I got a plan. Here's what we're going to do, everybody. All right, everybody, need your attention, need your attention. I know I'm the spokesperson of the group, kind of the leader of the 12. I'm the one that always makes the plans and just takes action. So here's what I want to do. Jesus, I'm going to just say, here's what I got planned. You know, Moses and Elijah, you fall in line with this. Here's what we're going to do, guys. You ready? Verse 6, he didn't know what to say. And so Peter in verse 5, excuse me, says, Rabbi, it's good we're here. Let's make three tents. Your uh, translation may say booths or shelters or tabernacles. So let's make three tents. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. Everybody good with that? Like, good? Let's, let's just put up three structures right here on this mountain. Now, why is Peter doing that? Why is Peter saying, hey, let, let's put up some tents for you guys? Well, this again is rooted in something very historical for the Jewish people. And I'm going to allow James Brooks and his commentary just to explain it. I'm going to quote it because he says it so well. He says, Peter may have gotten the idea from the use of tents in the wilderness and at the Feast of the Tabernacles. So the transfiguration may have taken place in the early fall about the time of the Feast of the Tabernacles. So to put up shelters as Peter wished, now pay attention to this, would have put Jesus on the same level as Moses and Elijah. It would have prolonged or even made permanent the situation. To do so would have detoured Jesus from the cross. The transfiguration gave a preview of Jesus' future glory. In actual fact, the cross had to precede glory. Mark wanted to emphasize that suffering was also necess necessary in the case of Jesus' disciples. So Peter's like, hey, I don't want this to end. So I'm just going to put you, Jesus, on the same level of Elijah and Moses because that whole cross business you talked about six days ago, we still aren't on board with that. So then verse 7 happens, and something takes place on the mountain. It says a cloud overshadowed. That word overshadow, again, gives us the Old Testament understanding of when God's presence filled the temple. Or God's presence filled the tabernacle. So God the Father has showed up here in this cloud and he's overshadowing this situation with his presence. And listen to what God says. A voice came out of the cloud 
And he said, this is my beloved son. If you have an NIV version, I love what they do. It says, this is my beloved son in whom I love. Listen to him. Listen to him. Look to Jesus. Listen to the words of God. Listen to what God says. You know, how, how do you know if you're a good listener? Like, I thought about that this week. Like, if God says, hey, listen to Christ, how do you know if you're a good listener? You know, there's all kinds of research out there that, that shows if you're a good listener. Uh, you want to make eye contact with the person that's talking to you. That, that's one step. You know, you're, you can use your, your facial expressions, your body languages uh, to say, you know, hey, I'm paying attention. You know, you nod, you smile. You know, you're not sitting there with your arms crossed or slumped back. I mean, you know, sometimes people tell me, I was like, oh, I'm sorry, my kid was distracting today or something. I was like, I taught high school history class for 10 years. I can talk through anything, right? I mean, you know, like I can talk through pretty much any distraction. But it's like, how do you know if you're really listening? You know, one of the biggest parts of being an active listener and a good listener, watch this, is listening more than you talk. Isn't that funny? If you're in a conversation, you want to be a good listener? Listen more than you talk. But what do we do a lot of times as Christians? We talk to God more than we listen. Right? We're always talking to him. And that's what prayer is. And that's okay. We talk, we talk, we talk. Prayer is letting God know what's on your heart. Letting God know what's on your mind. Letting God know what you're feeling. That's okay to do. But if you're always talking and you're not listening, you're not doing what verse 7 says. So how do we listen? How do we listen to God? Well, it's, it's right here. It's just interacting with his word. It's reading his word. It's knowing his word. So think about the way God communicates with us. He created prayer for us to talk to him, for us to know him, know who he is, know what he's like, know how he thinks, know how, we want to, how he wants us to live. He goes, hey, I wrote it all down for you right here. This is how I talk to you. So for you to know Christ for you to know who he is, you have to listen to God. And that is through his word. Because you become what you behold. Listen to his word. But finally, let me show you in verses 9 through 13. I think that's something very important for us to get as well. We want to learn to look to Jesus. We want to learn to listen to God. But we want to learn from God's servants that have gone before us. We want to learn from the suffering of God's servants who have gone before us. So verse 9 says that the event's over, that the cloud has disappeared. Moses and Elijah are gone. Now it's Jesus, Peter, James, and John again. And so now they start descending down from the mountain. And they begin talking. And they've got a lot of questions. I mean, wouldn't you have questions on this one? And Jesus says something very interesting in verse 9. He's like, as they're coming down, he charges them to tell no one what they have seen. Right? He looks at him, and I don't know if he really looked at James or John, but I know he looked at Peter when he said this. And he's like, Pete, don't say anything to anybody. You three can talk about it amongst yourselves, but you three, you're not telling anybody else what just happened. Man, wouldn't you? I mean, like, geez, I mean, like, we run to Twitter and Facebook and text people all the time when we make a good dinner, right? I mean, like, and right here, he's like, you've just seen the glorified Christ. And he's like, nope, you can't tell a soul right now. But notice that came with a time limit, right? Notice what he says. There's a time limit to that silence. He says, don't say anything to anyone until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. 
is that there's going to be a time you're going to start telling people all about me. Mark 16, 15, go into the world and preach the gospel to all people. It's still a command for us as believers today that we are to be sharing people. That's why one of the values of our church is to be a sharing church. We don't want to just know good news. We want to share good news. We want to be people that share good news. So we encourage you here to have a, have a four by four plan. Find four people in your life, whether they're friends, family members, coworkers, neighbors, cousins, whoever they are, that don't know Christ. You pray for them, you invite them, you share with them, right? It's your, your four by four plan. You find them, you pray for them, you invite them, you share with them. You, you do that because here's the thing. When the people of God share about Christ, people get saved. And, and we can do all kinds of big events. We can do all kinds of things as a church. But the way to really reach people is through you. Is through you sharing Christ with people you know. It's one of the most effective ways to lead people to Christ, period. It's for you just to go, hey, I've got four people in my life. You might go, I've got three people. Okay, great. I got two people. Okay. You may say, hey, I don't know anybody right now that's not a Christian. So here's what I want you to do. If that's you today and you're like, man, I don't know anybody. Start praying that you will. Just start praying. God, I want to share the gospel. I need somebody in my path that's not a Christian that I, I can share with, that I can get to know. I'll tell you what, I'm going to tell you a true story. You may look at me a little funny. It's, I, I swear to you, it's true. There's, it was pastoring up in Pennsylvania and uh, we're in my office one day, and it's been a while since I'd shared the gospel, and I was like, God, you know, I just hadn't had a chance to share, and I, I need to be more aware of that, and, and Lord, I'm just praying for an opportunity. Lord, give me an opportunity today to share the gospel with someone. Just when I leave here and I'm out in the community, just give me an opportunity today, and then make me wise enough to know it's the opportunity. Give me the courage to, you know, to take the opportunity and share. So, all right, Lord, Amen. As I said, amen, there's a knock at the door at the church. Walk out, their secretary went there, so I walked out, meet this guy, he says, hey, I just moved in the area not long ago, and uh, I'm looking for a church, and I'm looking for somebody to tell me about Jesus. Like, wow, that was fast, right? Now, I'm saying when you pray that, God's going to answer. He may answer really quickly, or he may take a little bit of time, all right? So I'm not going to say if you pray that, it's going to happen like two minutes like it happened to me, but I was thinking... All right, I guess this is the opportunity, right? <laughs> Just prayed that. And so notice in verse 9 that there, there's that command to, to be quiet for a moment, but then to share. But as we're sharing, as we're progressing along with Christ, as we're beholding Him, we need to learn that there are things that are not always going to be easy. That it's going to be hard. There will be suffering involved. And this is where we need to learn from those who have gone before us. Because they begin to ask Jesus some questions. They asked him, so Jesus, why do the scribes say that first Elijah has to come? And Jesus in verse 12 said, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written that the Son of Man should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But notice what Jesus says in verse 13. I tell you, Elijah has come. Now that's fulfilling the prophecy of Malachi 3.1 in the person of John the Baptist. Malachi 3.1 talks about a forerunner coming, someone coming before the Messiah to announce he is here. That's John the Baptist. But what did they do with John the Baptist? They killed him. Right? They, they treated him with contempt. And so Jesus is saying, Elijah's come, but they did to them whatever they pleased as it's written with him. What are they going to do with Christ? They're going to crucify Christ. What did they do with some of the disciples that, that walked with Christ? 
Many of them were killed. All of them were martyred for their faith, but John, but he was out as a political prisoner for the rest of his life out on the island of Patmos. What have many Christians throughout all of history had to go through? Some of them physical death. But I guarantee you all of them would say this if they could stand right here before you. It was worth it. Why was it worth it? Because they got to see Christ in all of his glory in heaven. And that's what makes heaven heaven. The glorified Christ is there. Without Christ in heaven, it's no heaven. That's what we're shooting for, to be with Christ in heaven. The one we're beholding on this earth. You behold What you behold, you become. And so if I want to glorify him, I want to worship him, I want to follow him, I need to look to him. I need to learn to listen from the word of God. Need to learn from those that have gone before to say it's not always easy, but it's always at the end of the day the right thing to do because you get to be with Christ in heaven. You know, I was reminded this week of a short story some of you may have uh, known growing up, but it's uh, from Nathaniel Hawthorne. It was written in 1850, and it's called The Great Stone Face. And the way the story goes is there was this village, and uh, overlooking the village was this mountain. And on this mountain, somewhere in some time, someone had carved the face, what it looked like the face of a man in the side of this mountain. And so among the villagers, there was this legend that one day this stone-faced man was going to come into the village. And when he came into the village, he would bless the people. Well, there was this boy by the name of Ernest. And Ernest would study the side of that mountain. He would sit in his yard as he was growing up, and he'd look at the mountain and study the face of the stone-faced man, look at the contours of his face, and he'd sit there and think what that man would be like, what that man was going to do when when he came and how he was going to bless the people. Well, as Ernest was growing up, uh, there would be times that news would spread around the the village that this stone-faced man had arrived. And the villagers would run out and meet him, and Ernest would run out and meet him, and they realized this wasn't the guy they they were hoping for that prophecy had pointed to. Well, as Ernest grew up later in life, he's walking through the village one day with a friend. And the friend and Ernest are talking. And and over the shoulder of Ernest, the the friend looks at the mountain. And he looks back at Ernest. And he looks at the mountain. And he looks at Ernest. He looks at the mountain. He looks at Ernest. And he stops and he says, Ernest, you're the stone-faced man. You've become him. See, Ernest became that which he beheld. Just like the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3.18, and we all with an unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed in the same image from one degree of glory to the another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. The more you behold Jesus and fix your attention on Him, the more your life becomes like Christ. Because you become what you behold. So to change your mind, behold Christ. And I learn his thought patterns. To change your speech, I behold Christ. And I learn to speak with truth and grace like Christ. To learn to love people like Jesus. I I look and I listen to the word of God and I see how he treated people. In order to become more like Christ in his image to conform yourself to him. You have to behold him. But why him? Why not someone else? Why behold Jesus? Well, because Mark 10, 45 says that he came to give his life as a ransom for many. 
that it is only Christ and Christ alone who has bought your salvation, the forgiveness of your sin for a price, his blood. It is only Christ who died on a cross for my sin and your sin that they put him in a tomb and three days later he rose again and now it is Christ who says, you come and follow me. You behold me on this earth and in this life and now when you die, I'll take you to heaven where you will be in my presence for all of eternity. He's worth beholding now because you'll become what you behold. So what has your attention this morning? What are you looking to? Who are you listening to? Who are you learning from? Let me tell you, it's Christ that we should be focusing on. Let's pray together. Father, I want to thank you for sending Christ Jesus into this world to die for us so that we may have life. But first, your word tells us we have to die to ourselves. And we have to realize that it is Christ who needs to sit on the throne of our lives. And Father, for many of us, we can say amen, that's us. But we can get distracted at looking at other things, listening to other sources, and not learning the lessons you want us to learn. So Father, I pray this morning, in a new way, in a fresh way, for believers in Jesus Christ in this room and in their homes that are watching at home, to say, Jesus, I want to behold you again. I want to ask that the Holy Spirit just falls fresh on me. And maybe right now where you are, that's a prayer you need to pray. To adjust what you're looking at. To adjust how you're listening to the words of God. To adjust today how you're learning. Let me encourage you today as believers in Christ, as you're praying right where you are, not to quit, to keep going, to keep pressing on. Because what this Bible is about are all these men and women who have gone before you, who now are in heaven, who are standing there worshiping the glorified Christ. That's the end goal. So keep going. As you're praying about that in your heart, let me encourage any of you and every one of you that may not be a believer in Jesus yet to make that decision right now, today. Whether you're in your home, you're in this place, right now, the Bible says, can be the day of salvation for you. And all you need to do is to give your life to Christ. Simply say, Jesus, I'm ready to follow you. I'm ready to trust in you and you alone for the forgiveness of my sin. The Bible says the way you do that is just prayer. Talk to him. Romans 10, 13, forever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's not a, a prayer God's going to turn you away from. He'll answer that, that prayer of salvation. So maybe today you just want to simply say, dear God, I give my life to Christ. I'm ready to follow him and follow him alone. Today, I believe in Jesus as my Lord and Savior. Thank you for saving me. Father, I want to just thank you again for this time we've had together today to sing, to study your word, to be in each other's presence. And Lord, I just pray as we continue to sing our last two songs this morning, that you continue to move in our, our minds, our hearts, our souls, to align our lives to what Christ wants us to be. Father, help us to behold Christ today so we may become more 
like him. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I'm going to invite you to 